if you will, turn in your Bibles to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our study through the Word. Now you'll remember that there had been a pruning in the body of Christ, a subtraction that led then to a multiplication and the church was just exploding. Some 20,000 people are now attending together there in Jerusalem and, and you will remember that there was a group that held all things in common and then there were the rest that were just being added to the church daily and, and the apostles now are contending with this explosive growth and, and how to administrate to it and organize the early church and to continue to preach and teach and, and reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll remember that there was a, a discrepancy, a, a concern that had arisen between the Hellenistic widows and the Hebrew widows. And, and this was, again, from the group that held all things in common. And there was a, a daily provision that was taking place and the Hellenistic widows felt that the that the Hebrew widows were getting more than they were and, and so they come to the apostles they want the apostles to get involved in this matter and to adjudicate it and you'll remember what the apostles did is is that they they looked at the administration they were being pulled into the minutia of the administration of the church and and they realized it's not good for us to to leave the weightier matters of studying the Word of God and praying to, to be involved in these things. But nonetheless, administration is important and also to make sure that everything is running justly and, and the way that the Lord would have it. And so they delegated that responsibility to a group of seven men. They said, choose them. They gave the qualifications, you'll remember. They have to have a good reputation, but full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. And, and so there were seven, Luke records the, the seven that were nominated and chosen. You'll remember that Stephen was the, on that list, and also Philip, too, that uh, we will see more of in the book of Acts. And, and this pleased everybody, and, and so there was unity and harmony. The issue had come to resolution. It had been identified. It hadn't just been swept underneath the table. It had been listened to, and now there was a, a proper conclusion to the matter. Church continued to grow, and, and you'll remember that we looked at another amazing thing that transpired, and, and that was Stephen. Stephen, who was filled with the Spirit, he was passionate about sharing the Word of God. He, he, he was passionate because he recognized and had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had been a Jew, a practicing Jew, and, and he had been underneath the law. But now he experienced the freedom in Christ Jesus. He not only experienced that freedom, but also recognized that Jesus is uh, the Messiah. The Messiah was the hope of the nation. What everybody was waiting for was the Messiah. And when Stephen came to that recognition and to that understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, the new covenant had been established and, and now we're free in Christ. He was burdened by those that were underneath the law. Whenever God delivers us from a, a bondage in our lives, we, we carry in our hearts a special passion for those people that are still underneath that bondage, that area where freedom waits for them, but, but they are held down. Addictions will do that. All types of bondages will do that in, in our lives. And Stephen had been living underneath the bondage of the law trying to approach God through the law. Now, the law was never meant to approach God through. The law was simply there to show us how far we fall short of the glory of God and to bring us to that place where we recognize that we need a Savior. And, and now... And Stephen had this passionate message that, that he desired to bring to every single person that, that he talked to. It No longer did he care about the, the temperature or what you were going to eat or how your job is going. He, he just wanted to know something. Are you free in Christ? 
Are you still burdened uh, underneath the, the law? And you'll remember that he started to go right into the synagogues. He, he, he wanted to get to as many Jews. In many ways, he's a precursor to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul also had that great passion and, and desire to unburden people that were trying to approach God through the old covenant when God had established the, the new covenant. And, and so he is passionately in the, in the synagogues and, and he's sharing with them. And, and it says that they were unable to resist, that he was filled with the spirit and wisdom and they were unable to resist the truth that he was presenting. Not only was he passionately presenting the truth, but, but also God gave him the ability, listen, to do signs and wonders. Now, signs and wonders had only been something that had given to the apostles. They had been given the gift of healing, the ability to cast out and demons have an authority over the demonic realm. But now suddenly, Stephen also is given that authority. What is the purpose why did God give the apostles the sign of wonders and, and signs? Why did, why did he do that? Was it to draw attention? Was it a, like a, a neon poster board that would collect people and then once people are collected together, then he can preach the gospel and, and reach more people? No. I don't think that signs and wonders were for collecting people. I think that signs and wonders were all about confirming the truth that Stephen was proclaiming. He was telling people that, that this is a move of God and this is where God is and what he is doing. And in order to believe that and substantiate that, God gave him the ability now to perform signs and wonders in the same way that Jesus had said, if you don't believe me for my own word's sake, then believe me for the miracles that I do. The miracles that Christ did substantiated what? The words of Christ, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we see now that Stephen, who is passionate about sharing the word of God now, is given an enablement through signs and wonders. He's in the synagogues and he's telling the, the Jews that God is on the move and that, and that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's reasoning and showing them from the scriptures and he's meeting great resistance. I find that there are two groups of people. I find that there are people who are open to the truth, that are hungry for the truth, that want to know the truth. And if that means that they're wrong, it means that they're wrong. And if it means they're right, it means that they're right. But they're more concerned about the truth than in them being right. And then there's other people that they just want to protect what they already believe. They don't want to be challenged uh, with truth. They, they want to stay comfortable with where they are. And, and when you are presenting truth to them, it's an offense to them. Those in the synagogue were more of this second group. Rather than like the Bereans to testing the scriptures to see, are these things true? Is this right? Is there something that is happening? Is there a new awareness, a new revelation of truth in my life? God is constantly seeking to reveal truth to us. And as he reveals truth to us, he calls us to respond to that truth. And, and rather than responding to the truth, we see that they became upset with the truth. It offended them, in fact. And, and since they had no answer for the truth, they sought to silence the truth. I believe that's always a dangerous course of action whenever truth is trying to be silenced, whenever free speech is, is being encroached upon. I believe that that's the wrong direction. You see, truth, being able to put truth into the marketplace of ideas and, and allowing truth now to rise uh, up to the top. Today in our culture, there is a, a removal now. There is a removal of the marketplace of ideas. There are positions that now aren't even allowed to get out onto the table. And, and here we see the very exact same thing was happening back then. They saw it since they couldn't overcome the truth. You can't overcome the truth. The truth is the truth. And and nothing will overcome the truth. Since they couldn't resist or overcome the truth, they sought to silence the truth. They sought to remove Stephen from the marketplace of ideas and to squash his voice. They, 
They didn't care that they were going to turn to nefarious means. They would justify their cause by the end. The, the end justifies the means is oftentimes a tactic of the world, but it is never a tactic of God. God is always concerned not only with the result, but also the methodology. Don't ever justify a, a wrong behavior by a good outcome and, and say, well, I needed to do that in order to, for the greater good or the cause. God, God is, in, is concerned with the integrity every step of the way. They are envious uh, now of Stephen, and, and so they are going to seek to destroy him. They trump up charges against him. They accuse him of blasphemy, blasphemy of the temple, blasphemy of God, blasphemy of, of the law of Moses. And, and now Stephen is arrested and is brought before the, the council on these charges. These are not parking ticket charges. These are not minor offenses. These are capital punishment offenses. Stephen is standing before the very group of men that had put Jesus on the cross. He is standing before the very same group of men that had told Peter and John that they weren't allowed to speak or teach in the name of Jesus and had beaten them and re sent them out. And now Stephen stands before him. The accusations are given to the council. This man's seeking to disrupt the nation. He's attacking the very foundation of who we are, the law of Moses, the temple, God himself. He's a blasphemer. And, and they turn to look at this man that is seeking to subvert the nation who is blaspheming, having the audacity to blaspheme God and to attack Moses and the law of Moses, who, who is this scoundrel, this criminal? And they, they turned to look at him, and it says that when they looked upon him, he had the face of an angel. The face of an angel. What does that mean? If a guy says, man, she looked like an angel, it means that she was pretty. <laughs> it means that she's attractive. When, when they said that Stephen had the face of an angel, I don't think that it had anything to do with his looks. I don't think that they were saying that this is a GQ kind of guy. <laughs> what does it mean he had the face of an angel? You remember that in the scriptures that whenever angels uh, are described, oftentimes they're uh, arrayed in white, but the white is a gleaming white. It's not just a white. They're dressed in white, but there's a, a gleaming white. There is, there is a radiance uh, beyond just the, the color itself. You'll remember when Moses came down from uh, the mountain with God that his face also was gleaming. It was shining. There was a, a glow from it, so much so that he had to put a, a veil over his face and and I believe that when they looked at Stephen, there was the radiance of the, of the glory of God that was upon him. He was filled with the Spirit. And, and so they look upon him, and, and Stephen now is about to give his defense. In verse 1, it tells us that the high priest, and now then the high priest said, Are these things so? Are you a blasphemer? Are you trying to tear down the, the law of God and... And the things that you are accused of, how do you answer to these charges? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Stephen is going to launch into a, a lengthy historical summary in order to build uh, his defense. He begins respectfully saying to them, brethren and fathers, fathers acknowledges his respect for them as the leaders of the nation. And he says, the God of glory, speaking about now the glory of God, it appeared to our father Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of the faith. And so here again, we see that Stephen is showing respect for Abraham, also showing respect for God. We see that in both showing respect of God and showing that he's not a, a traitor to his people, this amounted to a, a not guilty plea that that he enters in. He continues on and how the God of glory had appeared and, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. 
And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. He, he brings them all the way back to Abraham and the promise that was given to Abraham of the land that they are standing in. They are standing in Jerusalem. They are there in the in council of the Sanhedrin. Jerusalem, the capital of the nation of Israel. Israel, the very land that God had promised to Abraham back when Abraham was in Babylon. Ur was in Babylon. Get out of Ur of the Chaldeans and, and now and come to you. Come with me to a, a land that I will show to you. And, and so we see here that, that he departs and, and he follows God and and we see that he comes to Haran. Now, Haran is about 500 miles away from Ur. God had told him to leave Ur and to come to the land that I am going to give you. But he also told him to leave behind your relatives. We see that Abraham leaves Ur, but he brings his father with him. And he stops in Haran, and there his father departs and goes home to be with the Lord. And then Abraham continues on in their journey. And, and so he walks through the land. God shows him fortified cities and towns and fields and farms and flocks and pastures. And, and, and as Abraham is, is sojourning through the land, God says, I am giving all of this to your descendants. I'm giving all of this land to your descendants. And your descendants, they are going to be plentiful. They are going to be so numerous. They're going to be more than the stars in the sky. They're going to be more than the, the sand in the sea. It's interesting because at the time God's making that promise to him, Sarah and him are unable to have children. They are barren and they are past childbearing age. And, and God is telling him, all of this land that you see, your descendants, this is going to be your land. And yet by sight, how could any of that be? How could that even begin to be the remotest of possibilities? First of all, this, this is populated. All of the people are here. And, and also, we don't have any children. We have no posterity. But God had said it, and Abraham believed it. It says in verse 5, And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on but even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. When Abraham was walking through the land, not one, he didn't own one bit of it. It's not like he owned a big section and God says, I'm going to increase everything and add it to you. He didn't own any of it. The only possession of the land that Abraham would ever own is a tomb that he would buy, just a family tomb to bury his wife and and the rest of his family. And the rest, it was all by faith. He just simply trusted in God. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. So you see that God gave Abraham the, the, the basic uh, outline of the plan. He said to him, all of this land is going to be to your descendants. And your descendants, I'm going to make a nation out of them. But the nation out of them, I'm going to have them to be in another foreign land. They are going to grow up uh, there. And then I will bring them out and I will place them in this land. And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him and on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And so Stephen brings them all the way back to the formation of the nation, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember that Jacob then has the, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Jacob come from Jacob. And circumcision was the mark of the promise. The mark of the promise the covenant that God had made with Abraham, that I will do these things. And that covenant of circumcision, that mark of circumcision was the response of, I believe, God, you're going to do what you say that you do. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Egypt. 
Stephen now jumps to the story of Joseph. Remember that Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And, and you'll remember that Jacob, Joseph was the one that had the, the coat of many colors and, and that his brothers were envious of him. And you remember that Joseph had those dreams. He had the dreams that it, all of his brothers were going to bow down to him and even his parents were going to bow down to him and that he would be judge and ruler over his entire family. And, and this angered his brothers. They, they did not uh, like the fact that their younger brother was saying that y'all are going to bow down to me. His father sends him on an errand to go and to check on the brothers and and they have an opportunity when dad isn't there to lay hold of Joseph. And they take him and they throw him down in a well and they take his coat and they tear it into pieces and they put the blood of animals on it and they, and they bring it back to the father and they say, we have no idea what happened to, to Joseph. This is all that we found uh, of him. They had second thoughts about just leaving their brother in a well to die. And caravan was moving past, heading to Egypt. And so they sold him to the caravan that then put Joseph onto the slave trade market. Potiphar, you'll remember, purchases uh, him and, and he puts him in charge of a portion of his household, but every single thing that Joseph touched blossomed. And, and so Potiphar kept giving him more and more responsibility and, and, and Joseph arises uh, now in Potiphar's uh, household. And, and then you remember that Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and he gets thrown into prison. And then God shows him and gives him the revelation of dreams and interpreter of the dreams there in prison, which then ultimately gets to Pharaoh who has a dream. And Joseph comes and interprets the dream. And, and we see that God exalts it in Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh. We're going to see that Stephen is going to reference Joseph because Joseph is a typology of Jesus Christ. You see, the Sanhedrin is, is a typology of the brothers. And Jesus Christ came to the Sanhedrin, to the nation, to the authority, and presented himself as judge and deliverer. In the triumphal entry, he came and listed his credentials and, and we see that the nation wanted nothing to do with him. Who made you judge and jury over us? And we will have no part of you. It's more expedient than one man should die than the whole nation should perish. And, and they took and they rejected Jesus and they cast him aside and they had him crucified in the same way that, that the brothers now, this was God's will. God had revealed through the dream that Joseph was going to be the deliverer of the, uh, of the family and that he was to rule over them. But they wanted no part of God's plan. They wanted to rule instead. And, and we see the parallel now that Stephen is beginning to set up to show them ultimately that in Jesus Christ it is the fulfillment of the typologies that are throughout the scriptures. We're going to see Stephen lay this argument that in the first coming he was rejected, but then there's an exaltation, and then there is a second coming now in which the glory is now made manifest. He he brings up Joseph here and becoming envious, they sold Joseph into Egypt. It says in verse 9, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. You see, ultimately, Joseph sits at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's number two in authority and power, sits at the right hand of Pharaoh. That's what that means. And we see that Jesus, who was despised and rejected and crucified, what God had favor upon him, resurrected him. He's ascended into heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father now. Him who you rejected has now been exalted by God and sits at the right hand. The same exact thing happened to Joseph in the will of God. Joseph being the deliverer who was rejected, but God exalts him. And, and now we see that he continues. 
It says, Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. A great tribulation comes upon the land, and after the great tribulation, there is going to be the revelation of the deliverer. Christ's second coming comes after the great tribulation. When he returns in his second coming, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. So you'll remember that the brothers come to Egypt to get grain and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And then they go back and they come back a second time and it is at the second time that they come that there is now the revelation. Joseph reveals himself at the second coming of his brothers. And so again, we see the parallels of the revelation of Christ in his second coming. In verse 14, then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And so here Stephen is rehearsing, reviewing with them how the nation ends up in Egypt. They come down, Joseph had been exalted, they come and they start with 75. And then You'll remember the promise to Abraham. For 400 years, you're going to be in a, a foreign land. And, and so they go down into Egypt. It, it says now that Jacob dies and they carried him back to Shechem. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. The only property in the promised land that Abraham ever did own was just a tomb, a family and tomb that he purchased. Joseph has his father Jacob come and all of his brothers there and, and they settle in the land of Goshen, a, a posh land of pastures and, and there they continue to be blessed uh, of the Lord. Jacob dies and Jacob doesn't want to be buried in Egypt and so he is brought back to the family's tomb there in Shechem and, uh, and is buried. And so they continued to grow there. They prospered and, uh, and the Lord multiplied them. It says in verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. The population grows and Egypt takes them now and enslaves them and they start building cities for the Egyptians, but they continue to grow and God continues to, to prosper them. And suddenly Pharaoh now gets threatened. He's threatened by the size of the population of the, uh, of the nation of Israel. And he thinks if they ever organize, they could actually overthrow us and take our land from us. And and so Pharaoh decrees that the Israelites are not allowed to have any more children. They're not allowed to continue to, to populate. If it's a female, we'll let her live. But if it's a young boy, we will have him killed because that young boy can grow up into a soldier and can then be a threat to us. And, and so expose the baby to the elements and have the baby boys killed and and so this was the time that Moses now was born. And so, verse 20, at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. The decree was given to the midwives that if they, the Egyptian midwives, if they were helping to birth a, an Israelite. And if it was a, a boy, they were to make sure that the boy died. And it says that they wouldn't do it, that, <laughs> that they did not obey Pharaoh because they had a fear of God. Moses is born and parents do not allow his life to be taken. And, and you remember that he was three months old now. And Moses' mother 
puts baby Moses into the bulrush basket and sets him onto the Nile River. Miriam, his older sister, is told to watch the basket and to make sure that, that it is safe. And, and you remember that that basket floats into the, the area, the pool area where Pharaoh's daughter was taking a bath and she discovers the baby and takes the baby and adopts the baby. And, and now the baby is going to be need to to be breastfed. And so Miriam appears and says, hey, do you need a, a wet nurse for the baby? I know one. And goes and gets her mom and her mom becomes the wet nurse for, uh, for Moses. And, and now she continues to nurture him and, and nurse him and establishes his identity and helps him to understand that he is an Israelite. And, and so we see that he grows. Verse 21, but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Moses is given the greatest education that was uh, available. He is brought up in, in luxury and comfort uh, and privilege and, and he has everything at his feet. And yet, Inside, he knows that he is an Israelite. And, and God begins to speak to him. God begins to tell him that he's going to be used by God as an instrument to deliver his people out of Egypt. And that continues to grow in his uh, heart. And, uh, and now at the age of 40, he, he begins to believe that God is uh, on the move. And, uh, and so it says, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. There was a, a mistreatment of one of the Hebrews by an Egyptian, and, and Moses steps in, and, and the Egyptian ends up dying. And Moses believes it's begun. The deliverance of his people has uh, now started and surely everybody is going to know that I am the deliverer and they are certainly going to follow me. And so he avenged him, struck down the Egyptian for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them. Saying, men, your brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And, and we see rather than recognizing him as deliverer and judge, they rejected him as deliverer and judge. In the very same way in which they rejected Jesus as deliverer and judge uh, over them when, when he came. And so what does Moses do? It says, Then at this saying Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel, the Lord, appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Stephen is continuing to paint the portrait of Christ's first and second coming, that, that at his first coming he was despised and rejected, just like Moses. And when Moses was despised and rejected, what did Moses do? He withdrew, and he was gone from the scene for a period of time. And then at the end of that time, Moses is going to come back uh, again. And, and Jesus, uh, he was despised and rejected. And, and Jesus now has departed uh, from the scene, but now he is going to return the second time. And in the same way in which Moses returned with great power and authority, so also will Christ return with great power and authority. And so the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness in Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not to look. The presence of God manifests there in that bush and he identifies himself as the covenantal promised God of his forefathers. 
And then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. The holiness of God. You see, Stephen was accused of profaning the holiness of the temple. But Stephen is going to declare that what makes the temple holy isn't the building and the gold and the silver and the, the ornaments, but it is the presence of God. And long before there was a temple, there was holy ground that was sanctified simply by the presence of God. You see, it's the presence of God that sanctifies a place. And so it could have been that Stephen was talking about the prophecies that Jesus had given. You remember that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, when he stands there and he looks at the temple and he says that a day is coming when every single stone is going to be cast down and not one is going to stand upon another. It may have been that Stephen was declaring this prophecy of Jesus, which in fact was fulfilled by Titus and the army when they did raise the city. But Stephen is saying that what makes a place holy is the presence of God, not a building, not a structure. It is the presence of God. It's interesting that churches are sanctified. They're, they're holy ground, but they're not holy ground because of the sheetrock that was used or the special bricks or, or the design of it or the size of it. They're sanctified, listen, by the presence of God. And the presence of God is now in the believers. You see, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has placed his spirit inside of you. And in the very same way that the temple was sanctified by the presence of God, you also are sanctified by the presence of God. And then it says that when we come together, that, that God inhabits the praises of his people. The, the church is sanctified by the presence of, of God. It becomes holy ground when, when worship begins and the spirit is invited through the praises of his people. We see that God makes holy ground when it says, when two or more are gathered together in my name, there I am with you and I will meet with you. And, and so back then, in the old covenant it was in a physical location at the temple there in the holy of holies was where the presence of god was made manifest but now it's not a piece of ground it's not a location god is dwelling in us and and so and Stephen here continues now to, to express uh, here the the holiness of god's presence as he appeared to moses Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And God continues to speak to Moses. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And we see that Stephen emphasizes now that God both called Moses and also commissioned called and commissioned by God in verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in, in the bush. And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Stephen is going to continue to, through their history, weave the typologies and the portrait of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, including the fact that they are the ones that have rejected Jesus as ruler and deliverer. We'll see how Stephen weaves that together the next time uh, when we gather, but for now we're going to pause here. And I, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 3. In verse 3, we see that God is speaking to Abraham and he tells him to get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Come to a land that I will show you. In effect, God 
reveals himself to Abraham and says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you've got and I want you to come and to follow me and the life that I have for you is better than, than any life that you could establish and, and create yourself. Moses, rather, Abraham has a, a pretty good life. Abraham is wealthy. He's rich. He has got flocks and, and herds and, and he is well established in his community. He is respected. He is an influencer. He, he has got season tickets to the Golden Knights. He, he has got everything that you could want here. And, and God is telling him, I want you to leave it all behind. Leave it all. And you come and you follow me. And the life that I will lead you to is better than the life that you have built. In essence, what God was saying to Abraham was this. Do you trust me? Do you trust me that I'm telling you the truth? Do you trust that the life that I have, which is unseen to you and seen only to me, is far superior to the life that you are living now. No doubt Abraham would have liked some more information. Can you tell me a little bit about this life here? The life that I'm giving up is pretty good. Can you kind of give me some, some previews, some coming attractions, some, uh, some information about what it is that, that this life would be? And, and this is what God said. No. See, Abraham, if I did that, what you're really asking to do is to walk by sight. You want to compare by sight and two lives and then see which one fits more and what, and what you think. And, and what you really want to do is, is make a decision by sight. I'm asking you to make a decision by faith. Do you believe me? With no evidence whatsoever, will you trust me when I say to you that the life that I have for you is far better than any life that you can create for yourself. See, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to what? To please God. It's impossible to please God. You cannot walk by sight and be pleasing to God. You have to walk by faith. You have to trust what God says. You have to believe that what God says is true and then demonstrate that you believe it by actually acting on it. You see, that promise that God gave to Abraham is the very same promise he's given to each and every one of us. He's given that exact same promise to you. I know the plans and the purpose that I have you, to give you a future and a hope. The plan that God has for your life, he's inviting you into it. And, and you'll remember what Abraham does. Abraham leaves Ur. He, he believes God, he leaves Ur, but he stops in Haran. You see, he only partially obeys. He's departed from the world, but he hasn't yet entered into the promises of God. You see, that's that same step that we made when we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. The minute that you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you stepped out of the world. But now you haven't yet walked into the promises of God. There is still the sojourning with God that, that he is going to bring you and show you the plans that, that he has for you. But you have to obey his voice. You have to listen to his leading. And we see that there was a pause in Abraham. Abraham was told to depart and not bring his relatives, but he doesn't. He brings his dad. And then he brings his dad to Haran and stops and stays there until his dad dies. And during that time, God is waiting to continue to sojourn with them and to show them and to give them. But he's holding on. He's caught between two worlds. He's no longer in the world that he left behind, but he's not yet in the plans that God has for him to keep on walking. And God has his will for your life. And you have your plans for your life. And and just like Abraham, who had to sit there at the crossroads of the invitation of God into the life that he has and to hold on to the life that he knew, you also, and I also, am invited by God into his will for our life. What is the will of God for your life? Probably the most asked question that there is. What's the will of God for my life? 
I can save you a counseling appointment right now. (laughs) There is the general will of God for your life, and then there is the specific will of God for your life. I will confess that I have absolutely no idea what the specific will of God is for your life. But I can, with absolute authority of the word of God, tell you what the general will of God is for your life. The general will of God for your life is is that you would crucify the flesh on a daily basis, that you would pick up your cross and that you would follow after him, that the sanctification of your life is absolutely the, the will of God. The first will of God for your life is that you get saved. That's the first will. God wills that none should perish and that all should come to an everlasting life in Christ Jesus. So the will of God for every single person that isn't saved is is that they would get saved. But then once we are saved, that's our starting point now into the the plan that God has for our life. And and you see the word of God teaches us and, and tells us what that plan is. He wants you to walk by faith and not by sight. He wants you to crucify the base and lusts uh, and passions in your life that you are elevated to be led by the Spirit. He wants to shape you and mold you into the image and likeness of Christ. That is the, the absolute will of God in your life. He gives us the description, what the fruit of the Spirit looks like, what God's plan is in the same way that he told Abraham that I'm going to bring your descendants into Egypt and for 400 years I'm going to bring them back out now as a mighty nation and bring them into this land. You see, God declares that he is going to take and and to make this fruit of the Spirit become evident in your life, that that is what he is going to do, that, that you're going to experience it, the people around you are going to experience it, but he's going to be the one that does it. He's going to do it from the inside out. It's not going to be a a reformation project on your part. Christianity isn't a a self-help program where now you're given the description of how you're supposed to behave and, and now it's up to you to go do it. God says that I am going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take your heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with the heart of flesh and I will lead you and guide you now into my plan and my purposes and and what will happen is is that you now are going to look more and more like Christ that people will see more of Christ in you and see less of you. In the words of John the Baptist, I must decrease that he may increase in my life. That is the absolute will of God in your life. And then as you start to just work on that, you just work on yielding to him to walk in the spirit to to hold back the flesh in your life and as god continues to sanctify you and and turn you into the image and likeness he then is going to start to give you your specific will in your life it will start small just a gentle voice almost just nudges just little nudges it can happen after you just uh, had cross words and, and maybe you were just a little bit uh, elevated and, and suddenly the Lord will, will just kind of nudge you and say, go back and say you're sorry. What? Did you see them? I was right. They were wrong. Of course, I may have gotten a little passionate and, and the Lord says, just go say you're sorry. <laughs> the three hardest words in the English language. <laughs> I was mm, wrong. I was wrong. And I'm sorry. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And you step forwards and and you obey the nudging of the Lord. And then you feel the presence of the Lord later on come by and give you a hug and say, good job today. You did good. It was the right thing to do. You listen to me. And you have the joy of obedience in that moment. And then the Lord will give you another nudge. 
and it will fight against your flesh and it will be inconvenient and, <laughs> and it will be difficult and okay, all right. I'll do it. Are you happy now? <laughs> and then we do it and God asks us the question, are you happy now? And you see, whenever we obey God, we <laughs> have a joy that is the sweetest joy that there is. When we overcome our flesh and obey God, it's the sweetest joy that there is. Hard. Because the flesh dies hard. But it's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And, and then as the Lord starts to nudge you here and nudge you there, and, and then he, he, he'll put a question on your, your heart. Hey, how's your mom doing? I don't know. I haven't talked to her in a while. Why are you asking me? Oh, <laughs> maybe I should call her today, huh? <laughs> and you call your mom. And it wasn't an emergency and there wasn't anything, but he obeyed God. And then he just starts to nudge you here and nudge you there and puts a question on your heart there and a question on your heart there. And the Bible says that he who is faithful in the little things to him, more is going to be given. And as you continue to pursue the, the general will of God in your life, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, then he's going to start to speak to you more and more about the specifics uh, in uh, your life. And you will be stepping into the fullness of what you were created for. To be an obedient servant that God can direct to to accomplish kingdom building here in this life. And it will be the greatest joy that you can possibly experience this side of heaven. We see that Abraham departs and enters into the fullness of what God had for him. But when he was back in Ur, surrounded with the world and the life that he had built, God gave him that invitation to leave all of that and to follow him. And Abraham had to make that decision. Do I believe you? Do I trust that your way is the best way? May we, like Abraham, make that absolute decision to trust God. The plan that he has for your life is so far superior to, to any plan that you have for your own life. And may we step into the life that he will show us one step at a time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of your truth. And, and God, thank you for your general will and thank you for your specific will. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to abide in Christ, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we would become fruitful and that we would reflect your glory to a, a world that is so hungry for love and is so lost apart from you. God, I pray that, that not our will, but your will would be done. Help us now. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.